out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the indie band, The Poo Six, because I recently spoke to Hugh Williams to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. Now, interesting thing. We all know the single, don't we? I know somebody who knows somebody who knows Alan McGee quite well. So yes, anyway, you get the gist of that. But also, recently who, as well as Amelia Fletcher, have reunited, which sounds like a single from the 80s, uh, to form a new little combo called The Swansea Sound. And they have a new uh, set of songs um, and a full-on sort of new indie project, which has got a, um, yes, a single that's coming out or just out. So we'll be talking about that. So if you want to know any more information, I don't know, Google Swansea Sound, Amelia Fletcher, Hugh Williams, and you'll find it. And I think it's probably going to be on Bandcamp and all those other places. Anyway, I don't know. I thought I should just mention that before the interview. But after a long chat with Hugh about life, mainly trying to work out how to work Zoom. We're two old people on Zoom. Check us out. Uh, We started talking about the Swansea Project, uh, the Swansea Sound. Anyway, and this was uh, his reply. Anyway, take it away. It was just something that's happened. I think basically Rob's written all this, written the songs. We've we've got these two songs coming out next week, but we've we've recorded some other stuff as well. So this it doesn't feel like it's going to be a one-off. We're gonna we you know we're gonna work towards doing doing an LP. I think. Um, and he's been threatening me with a song. I think he I think it was Angry Girl, but he's he, for two or three years he kept saying he's got a song which isn't really a, a Catenary Wires song that he thought was kind of poo sticks like. Um, and I think it was in the first few, it must have been about two or three weeks into lockdown when everyone really were, you know, we were all hiding under our beds, that this song came through. And I was, I was a bit like, OK, how am I going to record it? Because they, I think, you know, Rob and Amelia have got like a kind of setup at home. Yes. And I have got any recording equipment here. And he was just a bit like, well, just bark it into your iPhone. So I literally, all, all the, the vocals I've done, uh, one take, <coughs> which, you know, considering the kind of parameters of perfection with my singing voice anyway, was uh, I just didn't think it would work. But it seems it's, it's worked really well, actually. Yes, uh, it does. It does have that quality that we come to love, you know, which is quite interesting. And lyrically as well, it's very funny. But the vocal with you and Amelia is, is kind of quite charming. Yeah, and it's it's obviously, you know, something we've, we did with the poo sticks and even in recent years we, we we did quite a few poo sticks kind of reunion shows together and yeah and it i think those shows more than when amelia guested with us in the past was that she was actually on stage but for most of the shows of the recent shows so we kind of had that dynamic dynamic was still there and i think yeah. that it's in these songs so yes yeah so it's, so it's, it's so so really it is like an indie supergroup isn't it well, I wouldn't say. I think media <laughs> described us as um, interesting indie historical characters. So uh, that that's that's good enough for me. I, th- I think it's quite interesting in, in you know, when when I first started the, the Poo Sticks and we did all that, it was very much a DIY kind of, you know, on tape was literally a kind of 100 copy white label, you know, 
press in that we, you know, we did the kind of Xerox fold over sleeve and a placky bag thing and, and sent it to John Peel. And, and all these years later, it's kind of a similar thing. It's that it seems very kind of cottage yes. industry in ourselves. And, and, and that feels quite familiar to me really. So it's, it's, um, and yeah, all that kind of anti-corporate shtick that we go in, in, you know, it's all extremely sincere and, 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 we're kind of fortunate enough that we can we we can kind of embrace that again, you know. Yes, in our I know. Motive. We can yeah. still remember getting very angsty when Sonic Youth signed to a major label, you know, from SST Records, you know, and there was a debate. You know, we must have had a lot of free time to debate such worry, to be so worried about Sonic Youth signing to a major. What was that going to do? Yeah, <laughs> uh, we did with the Poostex, you know. We ended up we 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 kind of yeah we got to the point where we signed to RCA Records and we were kind of never heard of again. And this was about 92, 93, whereas within a couple of years, you know, that whole kind of Britpop thing, you know, a lot of those records were actually, you know, pretty much all of them were on major labels. So yes, they all kind of, kind of went then. Um, yeah, I think, I think we were just of an angsty generation. So look, what was your kind of musical background? You know, when, when did music suddenly become the thing you know when you were watching top of the pops or you know listening to the top 40 you know daytime you know jimmy uh, young in the jimmy young in the afternoon what's the recipe today jimmy you know you know what was yeah, well, kind of a moment you thought god that's a bit rock and roll and your parents said i don't know if it's a man or woman it just they've got long hair though they had a big beard and you went i think it's a it's a it's a man dad it's definitely a man i think all that happened for me um uh, really early yeah i mean like probably six or seven i've got you know the classic kind of i'm just one of two boys so i've got one older sibling brother who's six years older than me so you know when he was seeing queen in the Brownwyn hall in swansea in 1974 or uh bringing home 10 cc albums like he was in 74 75 i mean i was kind of eight seven eight years old so um yeah the, what was the the new world record the elo album all those things were around the house when i was really young right then he went away to college and came back with you know the sex pistols album and eddie oh. and the hot and, and all that stuff but i think i had a really good musical education from my brother um and, and also even though i was only 11 when, when punk rock came around i had a a paper round and and I can remember just experiencing punk rock from the front pages of all the tabloids. And I really, you know, really remember reading about, you know, Johnny Rotten being like razored by a rocker or something. And um, so I think I became, I think you find with a lot of real kind of um, music obsessives is that it either runs in parallel with some kind of sport thing or they're really not sporty at all. And I'm, I'm the kind of former, I was actually really quite a sporty child as well. So I played a lot of football and, uh, and things like that. And, and right. uh, even in my kind of late teens and stuff, I kind of worked in sport for, for a little while as I started the group. So I've kind of never really had a proper job. I was only yes. ever working in sport or music. Yeah. Interesting. So was it Leighton James or Brian Finn that you were particularly keen on or Terry Yorath? Uh, well, um, Leighton James was the only one who played for the Super Swans. So, yeah, it was, Leighton James was my favourite of those. I mean, right. Terry Yorath managed the Swans um, years later. Yeah. 
Yes. Uh, I around with that that version because I worked at a, there was a um, there was a, a, an athletic stadium in Swansea in the kind of it's it's not there now it's where the new footy ground is and I worked there. This this was actually when I was in the poo sticks at the start of the poo sticks before it, that became my day job. And Terry Yorath was the manager of the Swans and I kicked around with them a few times because I played. I played for Swansea Schoolboys as a, as a as a youth, you know. Yeah. Uh, didn't become a professional, but I played with with quite a few of those. Dean Saunders was in the team with me, and people like that who went on to be professionals. So yeah. Blimey, you wouldn't want to tackle the ball with Dean Saunders. He was. Brutal. I know. Blimey, do you still hate Joe Jordan though? Uh, yeah, of course, all that stuff. We're over it now because we're by far the best home <laughs> home <now>, So, which <laughs> we prove again tomorrow night. If only, they, if only they'd had a camera, they would have spotted that handball. They never went yes. to the World Cup. It was it yeah. was a robbery, wasn't it? So look, so then you were very young, because actually I, I was, I'm probably the same age. So punk was, you know, because I my older brother was six years older, but he really, he was that he was into Yes, Genesis, Wishbone Ash, Barclay, James Harvest, and punk was like no, no to punk. You know, it was like that was his thing, and that was it for the rest of his life. Didn't have a seven-inch single in the record collection. So but then it was go. kind of for me. It was kind of um, yeah, punk never happened. But it, it was kind of about eighty-three time when indie pop started to eighty-two, eighty-three, and and that moment where you start to listen to John Peel for some random reason. And um, yeah, suddenly Phil Collins wasn't going to rock your boat anymore, really. So, um, so yeah, what was the eighties no. for you? Well, I, I, so Peel, I probably, you know, I was listening to Peel. I don't know how I would have found it by, you know, um, certainly by 79, 80. And, and yeah, I was 14, 15. Um, there was a Virgin Records shop in Swansea, which is where I grew up. And there was one of the original Virgin stores was in Swansea for some reason. I have no idea, really. It, it closed in about... 1982 and my brother was going there so I used to go there after school in my kind of in my kind of duffel coat and I, I, one of the one of the shop assistants there was a woman called Wendy May who who, was, who went on to be the singer in the Boot Hill Foot Tappers and oh, yes. uh, I mean she's not from Wales I think she was busting from somewhere her brother was um, Arturo from the Lurkers now all this stuff was really important to me when I was about 14 and I remember going in there after school one day and buying How I Wrote Elastic Man by The Fall and Staying Alive by The Bee Gees at the same time. And Wendy telling me I was really cool. So that made, meant something when I was 14, 15. Yes, um, God, that I, I would have been. So I think having, literally having something like The Virgin Store in Swansea was important. And, and I think in terms of the... In terms of the the, the the kind of indie stuff like you're talking about, I um, so the Smiths came to town. I saw that they played in Swansea twice in 1984 at the uni at the February time when the album came out, and then they played in the top rank later. Yes. So were the so, Red Guitars supporting them on that tour? Oh, I can't remember who was supporting them because they uh, came to they came to the UEA on, in '84. That was Valentine's Day, and. Um, Red Guitars were supporting them then, and then a few months later they came, the Red Guitars, and did did, did the sort of a show on their own. They were headlining. Okay. Yeah, I can't remember seeing a, a. I can't remember who the support band were. Yeah. Um, yeah, a lot of this stuff is fading from my memory now. I mean, the first the first band I saw were, uh, 
was was in was in the top rank in Swansea, which was the police <laughs> in 1979, which was uh, I went with my brother, which was yeah, it was just kind of like a random show, but uh, that 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 turned out to be I think probably the last club tour they ever did. So wow, absolutely, yeah. and um, amazing band in a way. I mean, I know we all pretend we hate them now, but they were still well, them. exciting for a 14 year old. Yeah, I was like, it was. It seemed punk rock to me, which obviously they were kind of old enough to be my my granddad at the time. But yes, um, or or history teacher. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't know. Andy had been around a lot, hadn't he? Because I got I had a boss who remember remember, remember seeing him in the sixties. You know, and it was like really, and it was like oh yes. I sort of looked at some book, and it was like God, he's got quite a discography, hasn't he? So when did you start to think you wanted to be in a band? How did that sort of jump happen because because at this stage you're not sort of showing any signs are you uh <laughs> I, I don't think i'm showing any signs now really i um, <laughs> i was kind of i was in, in a band of sorts when i was about eight or nine in school because uh, you know being welsh you have to sing so you know i did all that stuff i was in kind of like choirs and things and i, I was in a band of sorts in school, which and we had, I had a guitar, and I can't play guitar now, so God knows what it sounded like. Um, uh, so I don't know. I never had any pretensions to do it. It was something I kind of fell into when, you know, I was still only about twenty when we did the poo sticks thing, and it was very much myself and Steve Mitchell, um, Steve Mitchell, Steve Gregory from Fierce Records, and it was, you know, and it was an accidental thing where. You know, I came up with this name of, of the band, and even with the you know on tape and Alan McGee, the first couple of songs, which which were, um, yeah, which we we kind of wrote together. Um, I mean, Steve became the, the the kind of main songwriter as the band progressed, but um, it was, you know, I, I've never said it, it, you know it wasn't a joke or anything like that. It was just something you know. It, it was obviously came out of, of, of a bit of a, a jape and, and some fun, but Steve was a few years older than me and, and, and was a kind of veteran of local groups and had, you know, had a, like a, an eight track Revox in the basement of his house. And it was something which we literally put together really quickly. Um, yes. Cause I've, I've so, sort of got, I've, I've yeah. got sort of indie pop down between the years of 83 to 87, the years of the Smiths, basically. You know, it was a real jingly jangly period. You know, we had obviously Morrissey and Ma, then we had the go-betweens and the, the Triffids and the Wolfhounds. And, you know, it was really quite a golden period. And then so sort of when they split, it was like, oh my God, it's all over. And then Ecstasy came along and there was this kind of, suddenly everybody wanted the next thing. And there was also, I suppose, you know, the, the teenager who'd start that started then back in that period had got to that age where, they were moving on to other things and the next wave of people wanted their band. So, so how did you, I mean, during that period where you were kind of obsessed with that whole, you know, the C86 and Bogshed and Big Claim and A Witness and uh, I Ludicrous. I, um, I did, I, I, I did like a lot though. I did like some of those records and, and I saw quite a lot of those bands play. Um, but I also, you know, bought a lot of kind of early Def Jam records, and I was I, I was as obsessed with Sonic Youth uh, as I was with, you know, I probably seen Sonic Youth more than any other group, I think. And I start would have first seen them in about '86, '87. Um, but yeah, I did see Tallulah Gosh, and 
um, uh, the go-betweens played in Swansea. You know, I did see some of those groups and some of the early creation stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, and the but LL Cool J and Public Enemy and Steady B and T La Rock, they were they were definitely there on your on your turntable. So uh, yeah, the you know the uh, rock the bells and uh, and that's about eighty six, isn't it? Yeah, rock the bells. I got, was that the was that the seven inch single double A side with on the no, radio? I did Twelve inches of those, um, and yeah, the Beasties was a bit later. But you know those things at the time, I don't know. Yeah, I, I didn't dislike those records. I liked a lot. I, I like the I like really like Sonic Youth. And I saw Big Black play and and some of those things, but. I did see, you know, I saw Primal Scream at least a couple of times with, you know, the guy with the, the you know, the tambourine player. <laughs> um, that in Bristol. So we used to go to a lot of shows. I was basically just a, a, a fan. And I like The Fall. I mean, that's the other thing. You can't be a teenage boy without like, and I saw The Fall quite a few times with the, the two drummers. And, um, you know, I even like The Cure. I remember the first festival I went to was in, Cornwall in 83 and we went down there I was 17 18 and we saw the cure um this was kind of pornography time I guess or just yes. yeah when the walk was out I think classic classic and so, so when did you suddenly you know can you remember the first kind of song that you know you wrote and recorded or rehearsed at least and think oh actually this is so we, we never re- we, we 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 wrote on tape and recorded it at the same time so we never because re- because it, you know, it wasn't a group. It was me and Steve. It was a drum machine. He was playing the, the the guitar and bass, and I was singing, if you can call it singing. So the way I remember it was, it was kind of almost pretty much written and recorded at the same time. And I think we so we recorded that, and we recorded Alan McGee, um, at, you know, pretty much in. I think I would, you know, it was thirty odd years ago. Um, they were done in, in the same week, I would say. Right. So, um, and then Indie Pop, Eight Noise Pollution was soon after. But I think that first, the idea, we, we, we recorded on tape and had the name of the group. And, and then I took the picture of, 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 of the boys in the toilet of a club in Port Talbot, which was a primal scream gig. And we had our sleeve. And, and it was, we were kind of quite into the artifact, I suppose. And I think all we thought we were doing was we wanted to make this record and have this record. And we didn't really think we were forming a group because right. in ways we weren't, I suppose. And, you know, we put that out and we we had the Alan McGee song recorded and then Indie Pop. And, and I think the whole idea then of doing the kind of five singles in a box was was we couldn't think of anything more ludicrous. So we did that. And that was literally the second thing we did. But it, it did get... Um, traction as they say in the industry quite quickly i mean like peel picked up on it and jo- jo- weirdly the guy i think who had i mean john peel was really important i think because i think hearing stuff at that point was dif- difficult wasn't it so if you didn't get on the radio i think yeah. being on the radio was big for us and he gave us a session really early uh john walters rang up and we we got a, a session so but it was James Brown at the enemy. I mean, he was kind of as significant as Peel for us because James had just started there and was like a fanzine kid and for some reason liked us and, and you know, wrote a review of on tape, gave us one of those radar on pieces. And then yes. 
summer of 88, he gave us like a two-page feature. And so at that point, we were thinking, this is a bit stupid because we were only six months into the <laughs> band. So, yes, yeah. it was one of the fastest kind of, you know, launches ever, isn't it? Because you did it all in such a short period of time and getting the John Peel session, that was, it was May, the 3rd of May, you recorded that. No, it yeah. It was, yeah, I think uh, it was April. It was April, yeah. and then it was broadcast in May. So, and that was um, yeah, featured on on tape. Anna McGee, Heartbreak, Indie Pop, ain't no. Yeah, so you yeah. were definitely on a rich seam here as as well of kind of creativity. Um, yeah, that's when Amelia got implicated because we didn't we we'd seen. I think we saw Tallulah Gosh in the December, which was probably the last tour because they then split up, and. We went to see them in Port Talbot. We didn't, but we didn't meet them or talk to them on the night. And then, as we got this Peel session, we were kind of we could see. Even then, Amelia looked like she would sing with anyone who would ask her. So uh, we, we we called her up and asked her to do it, and she turned up. And it was all strange. I'd never met her before. She walked into Maida Vale and, and recorded that that stuff with us on the on the day. So yeah, well done. It's always been game. So. I think well done her. Yeah. yeah, well, absolutely. Those who say yes, uh, doesn't always work out. But sometimes it does, which is always good. So then, I mean, did this kind of change any of your life? It must have changed your life a bit. As in, you know, I mean, obviously, you weren't thinking this is going to be a career, possibly. But suddenly, you must have felt like there was kind of a few demands. And actually, this is kind of going pretty well. Uh, and I think, yeah, well, to be honest, uh, right at this, when we had that stuff in Enemy and stuff, it was, I think, so it was like Warner Brothers, there's quite a few major labels who seemed to want to sign us. And, you know, before we started recording the, the interview, you know, we were talking about, uh, you know, in those days, being independent would actually kind of you know, it was framed in a certain way, wasn't it? It meant something. So yeah. we kind of laughing at the, you know, we didn't engage with any, I think we had a few phone calls and we kind of were a bit like, well, look, you don't really want to sign us. We don't want to sign with you. So we, we got, we, we, we did a deal with Rough Trade in the sense that Rough Trade Distribution had these kind of manufacturing and distribution deals. So we just, we, we kind of had a deal of sorts with them where they would, basically pay for your records to be manufactured and then distribute them. And yeah, within a year of, of putting, you know, we, we kind of reissued on tape and, and the box set as a kind of mini album and, and sold a lot of records. So we, I think Steve had a day job at the, at the time and, and we didn't chuck in our day jobs, even though we probably could have, because we, we actually didn't want the, I don't, don't think we wanted a career in the music industry i was i was working as a sports coach and i was quite i was quite happy doing that and having this kind of weird twilight existence as a kind of minor cult hero so yes and, and does it feel strange that it's still 32 years later on tape and alan mcgee is still played with great enthusiasm and appears on every compilation you know from especially cherry red records it do you sort of find that quite boggling re remembering when you sort of recorded it and wrote it at the same time uh yeah i think so because i mean if we recorded that in august 87 around that time and it came out beginning of 88 then 32 years before that would have been 
Elvis. So it's kind of, <laughs> it, it just seems like a long time ago. Yeah. Yes. But I have be... to say, in terms of sort of good, you know, in terms of guitar music and all that stuff, I think it, it seemed to, after Britpop seemed to kill it all. They, they, you know, there's, there's always progression in music, but it just seems to be that kind of indie music is, it, it kind of stood still in a way. So at the same time, it doesn't surprise me that uh, when, when we put, when we did some shows, started doing shows again 10 years ago, which we did for five years, I just thought it was going to be people of my age, mainly blokes there with their arms folded. And I was really surprised that there was, uh, you know, particularly when we went back and we played in New York, it was a it was a young crowd. It was a twenty something crowd, I would say, uh, watching us, and that kind of really surprised me. So I, I suppose things, you know, that kids come along and discover things from before, like we did when I was buying, yes. you know, albums or something in the eighties. So yeah, not- I mean, it is yeah, it's kind of strange. But then I suppose. I don't know if you were the slightly similar, but you know, getting very excited by anything that came out of New York at that period, even if it was rubbish, you kind of wanted to like it and was quite determined to give it a go, weren't you? Because it was just, it felt very kind of exotic and it was over there and it must be really brilliant, even though you thought, oh, looking back, it was quite hard work. Yeah, uh, well, I, but, uh, and also you go, as I said, because like Sonic Youth and we kind of almost like liked everything on blast first you know which would include Head of David or you know Big Stick yeah which you know I'm sure are still pretty interesting records but yeah you'd have this kind of tribal thing which I suppose has has changed quite quite a lot now but yes well absolutely so then you went on to because you're the album your first album was out on 53rd and 3rd records which is based in Scotland so did you do some sort of deal with them? Um, I think... <laughs> uh, I can't remember what the story was now. We basically were recorded. It was a part of... It was, we, we weren't a live band as such at the time, So, but we recorded... It was from a party that we played. We, we've never played like an official show in Swansea, but we played literally in a house party and, and recorded it. Um, yeah, I think the story was Stephen Pastel stole the tapes, but um, they obviously just got couriered up to 53rd and 3rd. And I can't quite remember. We were obviously asked to do it. And um, that was the Orgasm album. Yeah. And it, which I think I heard, I did a, like a DJ set for How Does It Feel a couple of weeks ago. And I think Ian Watson played a track from that. And I was kind of on, on the live chat going like, what is this crap? <laughs> because <laughs> most bizarre sounding, I think some of our early records are amongst the most bizarre sounding things ever recorded. And it's got like a drum machine on it. And I even think my live vocals were re-recorded and still sound really live. So, <laughs> um, yeah. Yes. But, that was your one and only moment on 53rd and 3rd. The, the world of the shop assistants. So then as we turned the decade, you went back and recorded for Fierce, Fierce Recordings. Yeah, we, that, and that was recorded in the same way. So we were still recording with a, with a drum machine and, you know, yeah, with, I think we had another guitar player on it. But as, again, it was just kind of quite a studio-based thing. And I think uh, Formula One, I mean, it, it's got some good, good songs on it, but 
and it came that was the first thing that we did with sympathy for the record industry which was our label in in, in the us we did a couple of singles and then we did that album and, and which actually did did quite well out there so um i think it was on the back of that that then we kind of actually thought we wanted to make a record with with live drums on it um and yeah and 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 actually spend more than 50 pence on recording it because a lot of those early records were literally recorded you know in the basement of 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 fierce hq so yes. um and i think it kind of served us well but it uh, quite often sometimes i suppose with bands you, you hit a ceiling of what you're capable of and then you either you either get squashed against that ceiling or you try and change something and i think we uh, yeah, we decided to go to Holland and record with with some friends there, and, and we kind of almost like hired one of our favourite bands to be the kind of backing group for the Poo Sticks, and that and and that became the Great White Wonder record, which I think had really it, it, it that was it, it changed the group quite a lot in terms of it, it was almost a competent record with some almost quite exciting moments on it. So yeah, yes. and we played, yeah. Well, that got a lot of publicity, and it's also it does have a much bigger sort of production number on, doesn't it? Because you've got composers, you've got sort of Trudy, who's playing lots of really basically the Rick Wakeman of the band, isn't she? Yeah. Um, well, it, the we you know I think one of the reasons we recorded in Holland was that they had a lot of kind of it was a, a very analog studio and. Um, and uh, yeah, lots of very analog guys in there. So it, it was, um, it, it kind of worked. And, and I think it was, it, it was a sort of like spreading our wings a little bit, I guess. And, and uh, you know, we, we, even though we liked the, the, the kind of scene that we were kind of, um, uh, you know, being kind of pigeonholed, but, you know, we were seen as one of those kind of jangly bands where, you know, that wasn't really kind of what, we were about so I think we just wanted to I suppose it, it coincided a little bit with the teenage fan club and the way that they were going but we weren't really quite aware of of where they were going I think we were just listening you know to Crazy Horse and some of the similar records because you know a lot of the drum sound on Great White Wonder is basically Crazy Horse so right. um, yes. you know and that is going to be part one of the interview that I had with um, Hugh Williams from Poo Sticks. I have got part two as well. I won't go into great detail, but this it's to do with Zoom. So um, we had to stop there for a few minutes and then start again. So look, end of part one, part two coming right up. <laughs> 